Hello and welcome to the Yahoo Finance Podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. This episode features the full audio interviews from the 2017 Concordia Annual Summit Day 2. The first interview is Yahoo Finance's Jen Rogers with Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Congresswoman and Chair of the Democratic National Committee. After that, our own Shauna Smith sits down with Steve Davis, CEO of PATH, the nonprofit global health organization, and then Andrew Forrest, former CEO of Fortescue Metals, and finally, Cherie Blair, wife of former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. We are here at Concordia Summit in New York, and I am joined now by Steve Davis, the CEO of PATH. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So you're here at the summit talking about the importance of public and private partnerships when it comes to global health and technology initiatives. Talk to us about that. Sure. Well, PATH is a 40-year-old um, NGO, non-governmental organization, but we're very focused on the innovation agenda in health and how to make sure that health products and tools and systems reach the poorest people in the world and so addressing that inequity. The only way we can do that is by building deep partners with industry who have either the technology or the capabilities to um, companies, either big multinationals or frontline health providers who um, can provide all of that. So the one thing I would say is we, and I've been advocating all week here, is let's get out of the word public-private partnership because mm -hmm. almost all the evidence suggests that the best partnership is when you have public, private, and social sector because you need academic or nonprofit or multilaterals or foundations involved in a lot of this work as well. So we're advocating multi-sector partners. And the healthcare industry right now as a whole has gone through many changes over the past several years and maybe even more to come. The Trump administration is now trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. Yeah. How does this impact your vision for the healthcare sector and your uh, business specifically? Well, you know, it's it's um, a lot of disruption, both politically, but also you know changes in models around the world. The the, the good news is that um, we see, the, well, despite the the headlines, we see the trend lines being quite positive in terms of global on the global level where we focus. We work in over 70 countries. Um, morbidity and mortality rates are generally going down. Um, we're seeing a lot of innovation coming to the fore, and so I'm reasonably optimistic that we can accomplish some of the commitments that the goal is made in this area. That said, you know, there's disruption and uh, policy changes, whether it's a budget change or a policy on uh, family planning or, um, or uh, disruption in countries where we see new elections in different parts of the world are affecting our ability to reach people, our ability to uh, collaborate more deeply. So I'm an advocate for us continuing to try to build the best partnerships, but I'm also open to change. And if we can do things better, we should. And right now, PATH is doing more diagnostic work than ever in terms of vaccine development. Why is this a priority for PATH right yeah. now? So PATH works on uh, five main platforms. Uh, a lot of work on vaccines, a lot of work on drug development and introduction, a lot of work on diagnostics, on devices and tools, and then a lot of work with countries on their systems. How do they do malaria control? How do they actually rethink their model for getting TB under control or NCDs? But vaccines are super important because you know they're actually um, in, in the infectious disease area, if a vaccine is preventative, it's cost effective, it's 
it's very inexpensive once you uh, on a and it and it and, and it solves a problem early. And so um, we have a large platform and vaccine, a center for vaccine innovation and access that we partner with the Gates Foundation, and we're we have about 25 different vaccines we have in, in, in the pipeline that we're looking at different candidates for different diseases. So I'm quite excited about what we can do in the next decade in vaccines. And how do you make sure the technologies that you are developing, that they are well received? Is it all about cost or how do you really market that to the masses? Yeah, it's a it's a huge and complicated question because what we care about in, the, in our vaccine and all our work is that it's um, reaching the people that need it the most and, and at a price um, they can afford Afford, or the government can afford, or the system, and um, that it's appropriate for that particular context. So, a lot of it is understanding more deeply um, what the community needs, and so we, the majority of our employees are in Africa and Asia, technical um, employees around the world, um, and understanding the community's needs, um, understanding uh, the system that it has to work in, and helping improve that, and understanding the politics. And so, we have advocacy partners all around the world that help us navigate. That. And then, of course, um, making sure that we do this as cost-effectively as possible. So one of our biggest goals is to take products that might already exist that you and I use or our families use and rethink could we develop them differently with a different set of tools or something that we can make them much less expensive. So then we could be they could be afforded at the big government procurement models that otherwise are not available. So we've done that. With a good example is um, uh, meningitis A, which was a horrible disease in Africa, very, very killed and also neurologically disabled, lots and lots of kids. The ministers of health in Africa, in that part of Africa, said we this is a horrible thing, and yet kids in Europe and the United States aren't dying of this disease. So the problem was is the vaccine was too expensive. So then we went in and said, why do we develop a vaccine at less than 50 cents a dose, which the African ministers insisted on, um, in order to make it affordable? And now we've done that through partners around the world, public, private, social partners. And now over 300 million people have received that vaccine. No one's getting that disease, and we are close to a eliminating that from the it's African continent. Wow. All right, well, Steve Davis, the CEO of PATH, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. We're here at the Concordia Summit in New York, and I am joined now by Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Thank you so much for joining My me pleasure. today. My pleasure. Good to be with you. I want to start with the recent devastation from Hurricane Irma. Yeah. This hurricane really impacted your district. How is the cleanup going, and what do you need more from the government so far? Do you need more funding? Well, while my area of South Florida was not hit the worst, uh, certainly the Keys and Southwest Florida got it got it stronger. We have tremendous damage in terms of the downed trees and the length of time people were without power. It has just been you know, restored for most places in my community. Um, there's no question that all over the state we are going to need emergency supplemental funding to help people recover, clean up, uh, and as a member of the Appropriations Committee, I'm going to be working with Speaker Ryan and my appropriations colleagues to make sure that we can determine the needs. We're actually going down to the Keys with the Speaker tomorrow on a, on a CODEL, on a congressional trip, to take a look at, uh, at how much damage there is down there. And then we can go back to Washington and work together 
to make sure that we can bring resources to this devastated community all across the state. And one of the big headlines coming out of that devastation from Irma has been the number of deaths in nursing homes, yes. uh, the number of nursing homes that have been needed to be evacuated. Right. What are some of the biggest lessons that your district and not only your district, but the state of Florida have learned from Irma? Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, <laughs> it's stunning that nursing homes in the entire country, never mind Florida, um, aren't required to have a backup generator that can run medical equipment and keep the air conditioning on, uh, or the heat for that, for that matter. In the wake of eight people dying in a nursing home in Hollywood, a city that I represent most of, um, not only was there not a generator that provided that ability, but we also learned that Governor Scott has fired the most effective ombudsman that was overseeing the regulation and care of nursing home residents. He's been through five ombuds, nursing home ombudsmen in six years. The, the Republican-led legislature defeated legislation that would have required, after Wilma hit Florida very hard, defeated legislation that would have required gen generators and a pilot project in, in Broward County, where this nursing home is, that, I, that I'm a resident of, uh, that would have started up a pilot project to require nursing homes to have generators. So I'm planning to introduce legislation that will not only require those backup generators, but provide a carrot and a stick approach. I mean, we should deny them federal funding if they aren't able to take care of their residents in a crisis and make sure that we don't have to worry about finding nursing home residents dead in the midst of a natural disaster. And taking a step back and looking at Washington right now as a whole, we have seen President Trump more willing to work with Democrats, it seems, recently with his recent negotiations with uh, Senators uh, Chuck Schumer and also Nancy Pelosi. What's your reaction to that? Would you be more willing to do business with Trump right now? Honestly, I, I, our, our party and our, our party's leadership has advocated consistently that we need to sit down and work together. Um, the policy of the you know, passing things with the majority of the majority that the Republicans have engaged in for another number of years is irresponsible. So yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled to see that President Trump was willing to work with our party uh, leadership to pass uh, an increase in the debt ceiling, uh, adopt a temporary CR so we can spend some time working towards a longer term, you know, permanent omnibus bill, and, uh, and frankly, make sure that we can protect 800,000 dreamers who have been brought to this country through no fault of their own and are really contributing to the you know, betterment of our nation. And talking about those dreamers, you have been very outspoken about DACA. You actually tweeted, I believe, that Trump's decision on DACA is heartless. What do you think the prospects are for reaching some sort of legislation here? Do you think we could get that in the future? Uh, I'm certainly hopeful. Um, it's. President Trump is pretty un unpredictable, and so it's hard to count on much of what he says. But you know, he seems to have shifted his position from initially ending the program to being willing to adopt permanent legislation. Uh, we, we have to make sure that our dreamers have a pathway to citizenship, that they're able to remain in this country. This is the only country that uh, that they've ever, they've really ever known, and they are members of our military. They are our college graduates. They are professors and lawyers and doctors, and they're part of the backbone of our economy. And it would be inhumane to send them back to the countries that they've never known. And uh, looking forward here and talking about the 2018 midterm elections, as former head of DNC, 
Just want to get your opinion. What do you think the current state of the party is? And do you think the Dems will succeed in the midterm elections? Well, I think we have tremendous opportunity to succeed in the in the 2018 midterm elections, particularly the, the House of Representatives in which we have really incredible candidates who have stepped up and decided to run for the House all over the country. Um, uh, there is still too much division in the Democratic Party, and it is not productive to uh, engage in finger-pointing and criticism that some of our, uh, our party members are not uh, progressive enough. Uh, we need to focus our, our ire and our criticism on the Republicans and the Trump administration. And the only way we're going to be able to effectively do that is if we're united and focused on making sure we can elect Democrats so that we can protect access to health care, we can make sure that senior citizens have you know, Medicare remain the, the program that it's been for you know, 60 years. We've got to make sure we protect Social Security. We've got to make sure we can pass comprehensive, <coughs> comprehensive immigration reform. All of those things protect seniors in nursing homes. It's clear that Republican policies have been you know, detrimental to all of those goals. And that's why we need to make sure that we win at least the House or the Senate so that we can be a check on the Trump administration's horrendous policies. And we are here at Concordia right now. You were just on a panel talking about the latest problems happening in Venezuela. Yes. What do you think the U.S. can do and what do you think it should do? Should the U.S. intervene right now? Well, we have intervened thus far, and I'm actually glad the Trump administration has has begun to ratchet up the sanctions against the Venezuelan regime. Right now we're focused more on the individual sanctions uh, against leaders. There needs to really be an intensification of the sanctions we levy. We need to work with the OAS, with the European Union, with the United Nations to begin to impose ever more intolerable sanctions. The worry is what that would, how that would impact the Venezuelan people, but things are pretty dire for Venezuelans now. And if we can move the, the, the ball down the field towards ensuring that we have free and fair elections restored, political prisoners released, and the situation on the ground in Ven for Venezuelans relieved, that'll be essential. I, I represent the second largest population of Venezuelans in the country, and many of them have had their businesses confiscated, feared for the fled because they feared their children would be kid kidnapped from their playgrounds. I mean, it's, it, it's an incredibly dire situation. So Venezuelans who have been in that situation come here because of that, need to be given TPS. The, 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 the Trump administration, when this interview is completed, could adopt TPS for Venezuelans and allow those that qualify to remain in the country who fear for their safety and their life in, in returning. And we also need to adopt the Venezuelan Refugee Assistance Act, which will allow a more permanent solution that, if they qualify under certain conditions, can adjust their st immigration status to permanent residency. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, thank you so much thank for you. joining me today. My pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. We're here at the Concordia Summit in New York, and I'm joined now by Shiri Blair, Omnia Strategy founder, and also Andrew Forrest, uh, founder of the Walk Free Foundation. Thank you both so much for joining me today. So you guys are here talking about the need for multinationals to address the human rights issues that the world is facing today. Why is this so important, and what are the greatest challenges uh, affecting these issues right now? Well, today in particular, we're talking about modern slavery. I'm not sure that many people realize that this is a problem in every town and in every city across the world. It's a problem here in the United States as much as it's a problem across the world in, in, in places like Burma or Sri Lanka or in Africa. And that is people who are not given the dignity 
of being able to uh, make choices for themselves because they're either in sexual slavery or they are bonded laborers working in, in uh, industries where they're not being, they don't get paid enough money so that they never get out of debt and therefore they're constantly in, in hock to their employer or they are domestic servants who are abused and maltreated in, in, in by the families that they are uh, looking after. It's a huge problem all over the world and that problem seeps into the supply chains of the goods and services uh, we buy in, in our shops, whether it's the chocolate that we eat or the, uh, or the uh, prawns and shrimps that we may uh, have in our uh, daily diet. If you start looking for where they came from, you will find child labor, forced labor in those supply chains. And it certainly is a global problem, like you were just saying. Andrew, your background, you're a businessman. How did you first get involved with this? And talk to us about the Walk Free Foundation. Okay, thank you. I founded with my daughter, Grace, the Walk Free Foundation about seven years ago. It was after um, an experience with, uh, with Grace that we uh, discovered child sex slavery from Nepal through India up into the Middle East um, and I began to say well you know I have to do something about this as, as a person of means I can so I should um, and then I found slavery in at an industrial scale in the supply chains of my own company um, and that was then truly arresting that led to the in instant founding of the Walk Free Foundation and today the Walk Free Foundation and the ILO the International Labour Organization have put out the world's first in history, the first common published number of the number of slaves which exist in the world as you and I speak, and it's over 40 million people, almost twice the population of my country, Australia, are enslaved right now. But I think the even more shocking number, if we look back over the last five years, some 90 million people have suffered slavery. Um, they're either in it now or they've been in it. And that truly means that what Sharia said, that this is a global systemic problem it's the responsibility of government and business to work together now to end modern slavery. And Sherry, what Andrew was just saying, the 40 million number, that is a huge number here. So how do we best address this issue? Is this something that we should rely on the governments to do? Should it be a public-private partnership? What are the best resolutions, do you think? Absolutely. This is something that has to be done in public-private partnership. And. Uh, it definitely has to be done also through the law. We see that, for example, in, in my country where we've passed something called the Modern Slavery Act, which, is a, a, which requires larger companies to publish a report every year about what they're doing to just uh, investigate whether there is slavery in their supply chain. You can comply with that act by saying we're not doing anything about it. But the idea is, and what is proved to be, is that by encouraging companies to report these missions, matters it therefore encourages them to do something about it and why do they need to do something about it well firstly it's morally right but secondly consumers are becoming much more aware of what is going on and one only has to think of what happened for example in Rana Plaza and the, the, the garment factories of Bangladesh when the, 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 they, they collapsed and people started to realize that the clothes on their backs were being made out of the sufferings of, of poor people in distant countries and feeling that we need to do something about it. And you yeah. talk about the need, the call to action. Andrew, what are some of the biggest successes that you guys have had at the Walk Free Foundation and how can you build on those here for the future? Well, 
Just picking up Cherie's point and to your question, textile companies across the world are now answering the call to not procure cotton from, say, Uzbekistan, where there's systemic national slavery, um, to ensure that their supply chains for, their, uh, for, say, food, like seafood, or industrial products, like in my own company, when we discovered slavery at an industrial scale, that company, which all the way up the food chain, was a British PLC, not far from the British Parliament, that company was supplying goods to at least 200 of the top 500 companies in the world, including my own, and they all therefore have slavery in their supply chain. So what Cherie's saying, that this is a global issue which must be answered with global action from governments and businesses and communities working together to say, now that we've proved modern slavery exists, now we can measure it, now we can eliminate it certainly a major issue that everyone across the globe will need to keep an eye on. Sherry Blair and Andrew Forrest, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to these exclusive interviews on the Yahoo Finance podcast. Please find us online, Twitter, and Facebook, and tell us what you think. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.